Um, as usual, we'd like to thank the Arts Council for supporting the whole festival. And this event has been sponsored by Alan and Judy Lloyd. So thank you very much to them for that. Uh, so the uh, format of this session is um, that our four people up on stage are going to be talking about some of the issues from the book. And they'll be reading some of the poems. Now, I don't know what poems they've chosen to read, but some of the poems in the book you might need a little content warning. Some of them are about violence. Some of them, that's sexual violence. So I just wanted to warn you about that in case you didn't know the nature of the book. Um, and at the end, there'll be chance for you to ask questions as well. Um, Ros Goddard is chairing this session. Um, so I'm just going to introduce her and she'll introduce the others. Um, she was telling me that she worked out this morning. It's 20 years since she's been coming to Ledbury and she's really delighted to be here again. And it's been a great year for her because her collection Spill has been published by Flair Stack. And that's available along with books from the other poets and the copies of the Me Too anthology from the Three Counties bookstall at the back of the room. So sit back, fan yourselves and enjoy. Here's Ros Goddard. Thank you, Thank you very much. <clears throat> and lovely to see you. And are those levels okay? Can you hear me? Great. Yes, it is a real delight to be here. Um, I've over the years done a number of uh, in conversations and hostings of poetry events um, and some of them have been really dreadful um, but none at Ledbury um, <laughs> so this afternoon is just going to be wonderful and we we are here um, to read from and to uh, discuss both poems and issues around um, sexual harassment and abuse from Deb Olmer's Me Too anthology uh, so there, there will be an opportunity for you also to give your responses and uh, ask questions after we have um, read to you and we've had our discussion. So I'm delighted this afternoon to be joined by <clears throat> Pascal Petit, who the, whose seventh collection, Mama Amazonica, was published by Blood Axe in 2017 and won the Royal Society of Literature on Darche Prize 2018. It was a Poetry Book Society choice and was shortlisted for the 2018 Roehampton Poetry Prize. <clears throat> Excuse me. It is set in a psychiatric ward and the Amazon rainforest and draws on her travels in the Peruvian Amazon. She has had four previous collections shortlisted for the T.S. Eliot Prize. Kim Moore's first full-length collection, The Art of Falling, was published in 2015 and won the Geoffrey Faber Memorial Prize. Her first pamphlet, If We Could Speak Like Wolves, was chosen as an independent book of the year in 2012. She's currently a PhD student at Manchester Metropolitan University, where she is exploring how to write poetry about sexism. Deb Olmer's debut collection, Dirty Laundry, was published in March 2018 by Nine Arches Press. Her first poetry pamphlet, True Tales of the Countryside, was published by the Emma Press, and she's also known as the Emergency Poet, 
when she tours the country dispensing poetry pres prescriptions in her 1970s ambulance. And Deb has hot-footed it from London today. She was on Woman's Hour this morning. Check it out on Play Again from about 10.30. She's, she's really wonderful. So, Deb, my first question then. I know that um, the process of putting the anthology together began in, in sort of winter 2017. Could you say something about the process and, and how it all began? Um, well, it, it began... It, began in, in my head, I suppose, uh, watching all of those reporters in, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein allegations, um, interviewing female politicians and actresses, and, and male reporters being shocked when they asked the question, has it happened to you? And, and the women, all of them, saying, well, yes, of course, it's happened to me. Um, so it, it, it provoked... Um, me, I, I decided to ask on Facebook, and I'm a bit of a Facebook tart, is that the expression? Um, and so I've got lots of Facebook friends, and I decided to ask the women there um, who amongst them hadn't um, experienced any sexual harassment in their lives. Um, and 200 women responded, I think, uh, and, and most of them wanted to share their stories, and it sort of burgeoned, and of the 200-odd that responded, I think two women said that it had never happened to them. Um, and I was surprised that there were any at all, actually, um, rather than you know, being surprised that there were, were none. Um, and uh, somebody suggested that we collect these stories. And as most of the friends there were poets, and I knew um, some of the work um, mm. of those poets, I decided to, to put a call out for submissions for an anthology. Mm. Thank you. And be before you read a poem from the anthology, I'd just like to ask um, Pascal and Kim, when Deb approached you for work, what was it that made you think, yes, this is a piece of work that I, I want to be involved in, Pascal? Well, um, I, I guess in most of my books that... Um, I have written about some of these subjects. So, in fact, they are, they are the overarching themes. And in particular, um, with the latest book, Mama Amazonica, it, it really, the whole book is really um, uh, an exploration of, uh, of and an attempt to transform uh, what it was like for my mother to live her life after rape. And uh, I, I take her to the Amazon rainforest to make the whole thing bearable. Um, so, so it just seemed to make sense to to um, have one or two poems in the anthology, really. Thank you, Kim. Um, I think when the kind of Me Too movement started, um, what struck me about it, I'm on Facebook a lot as well. Um, was was I agree about the surprise of men that I know who were really surprised when I said yes that's happened to me and I thought it was a really important time and um, a really good way of speaking to men about these things I think women have spoken to each other for a long time about them but um, it seemed like a chance to speak to to speak to men and um, yeah and I wanted to be part of the anthology because of that and um, 
I must have, I think um, I was umming and ahhing, shall I send something, shall I not, like most poets do, I suppose, um, about putting your work out there. And then I saw that you had Pascal signed up and Helen who's in the audience, and I was like, oh, I really, you know, I'm going to give it a go. So, yeah, so it's, I, I write, I'm doing a PhD about sexism, so I'm writing a lot about, um, about those experiences, and it felt quite lonely on my own, and it felt like, mm. like this is a chance to be part of something instead of being a lone voice, sort of thing. Perhaps you'd like to share a poem from the anthology for us? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I'll read... Um, this poem comes from my, from my book, and it's part of a longer sequence about domestic violence, but I think... Um, what I was really trying to write about was how the body um, remembers trauma, even when we, block, when we block things out, the body always remembers violence. And it's called Body Remember. Body, remember that night you pretended it was a film. You had a soundtrack running through your head. Don't lie to me, body. You know what it is. You're keeping it from me. The stretched white sheets of a bed, the spinning round of it, the high whining sound in the head. Body, you remember how it felt. Surely, surely. You're lying to me. Show me how to recognise the glint in the eye of the dog, the rabid dog. Remind me, O oh body, of the way he moved when he drank, that dangerous silence. Let me feel how I let my eyes drop, but birds falling from a sky, how my heart was a field, and there was a dog loose in the field. It was worrying the sheep, they were running, and then they were still. Oh, body, let me remember what it was to have a field in my chest. Oh, body, let me recognise the dog. Thank you. Thank you, Kim. Um, in many ways, the, the Me Too anthology was kind of born out of a, a collective anger, but, but also a silence. And um, I found a quote here from um, a collection of essays by Laurie Penny, uh, Bitch Doctrine, in which she says, Many women you know, many women you know are angrier than you can possibly imagine. Most are pretty good at hiding it, having been taught to do so since childhood. And I just wondered, first of all, do you think that's true? Has it been true in your own life? And at what point did breaking the silence? in your poetry feel important to you? Um, silence, because it's silence and anger is the question, isn't it? Um, and I suppose, um, I don't think that, for, for me and, and the women I know, I don't think we've been silent, but maybe we've been talking quietly um, and um, privately. Um, and, and again, I think the anger is not hidden but but is there when we talk to each other um and i i think it's almost like lots of us when we write our poetry um it, it it's it again it's it's expressing it it's not silent but it's not there's something about this collective thing of, of lots of quiet female voices saying something together is that kind of crescendo of 
of sound mm -hmm. and, and makes it louder, but, but we're all saying it, so many of us. Um, because, yeah. of course, in your first collection um, with the Emma Press, some of these themes were in that collection yeah. and you take that through to, to, to Dirty Laundry. So have you always written um, very honestly and authentically about your experience um, around these things? I, I think so. I think, for me, like other women, I think, I think maybe Kim and Pascal are slightly different in that, in that most women's collections, uh, poetry collections, they'll be writing about whatever it is that interests them, whether it's their relationship with their mother or love mm. or travel or politics or whatever, but quite often there's one or two Me Too-like poems in there. So, in, in a way... The, this book is... It, they've always been there, haven't they? They've mm. been there for a long time, I think. Thank so you. putting it together. Pascal, Silence and Anger. Silence and Anger. Um, well, um, I was very angry uh, when I wrote The Zoo Father, which is the first of my real parent uh, books. And um, e even then, it's mediated through animal uh, imagery. But uh, th let's just say that I, I did have to... I was seeing a therapist then, and, and it was a, a, quite a concern to me because I'm not, I'm not a, a violent person. Um, but there were some violent poems in there. And then also the book that followed that, so that was about child abuse, mostly. Uh, the book that followed that, The Huntress, was the first book about my mother, and that also is full of anger at my mother, who wasn't, you know, she didn't really mother me. Um, by the time I wrote the second father book, Fovery, and the second mother book, Mama Amazonica, I think a lot of the anger had, I'm not sure if it had gone, but it had changed, or uh, time had elapsed. Mm. And, um, yeah, and I, th I think by then I, I was kind of more concerned with, for example, um, on the one hand, the stories that were coming in about, um, especially in India, the, the rapes, the, the very violent rapes of women and, um, and, and other instances where they are stoned or punished for being raped. And so there was that, you know, I was trying, trying to deal with the whole, uh, a global epidemic, really. And, and um, on the other hand, also, taking it into the Amazon rainforest, I was just generally thinking of, um, you know, the misuse, the abuse of power uh, from um, one human to another who, who is weaker and humans to the natural world, to animals, to trees, whatever. So that's mm. Thank you. Not much silence, though. No. <laughs> Good. Okay. Um, yeah, I think I'm much angrier in my poems than I am in real life. Um, and I've noticed a lot of the poems I'm writing about sexism I'm often like biting my tongue or not saying something that I want to say. Um, uh, in that, you know, I'm describing an experience, and in, in the actual experience, I'm often not saying something that I wish I'd said. I always think of a really good repost like two days later. I think I could have said that. It would have, you know, it would have been great. Um, but I think 
the reason poetry is so good to write about um, these things, for me, a lot of the time I don't quite realise why I'm angry about something. Um, one of the poems in the book that I, I didn't read, but um, was I was on a train and this guy... I'm on trains a lot, and this guy just kept asking... You know, I was, I was sitting there reading a really good book, and he kept asking me questions. He was being friendly rather than kind of creepy. And then I put my book away in the end, and I, and I spoke to him, and I thought, I'll just, you know, just talk to him, it's fine. And he said, oh, yeah, I get really bored on trains. I just want to be entertained. And I was like... <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then I read yeah. this Adrian Rich uh, quote, and she says, um, you must read and write as if your life depend, depend, depended mm. on it. And I thought, what am I doing? I'm... I'm not, re I'm not reading and writing because I'm so concerned about pleasing this, this man. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that kind of answers, yeah. answers the question, but I didn't know why I was angry. So the poems, for me, are a way of finding out what I'm angry about, and often I'm angry at myself more than the, more than the other person, and I think that's a common thing that... Um, I mean, maybe men do it as well, but I think women often turn the anger like, inward mm. rather than outward. Yeah. So. Oh, you get depressed. Yeah. yeah, mm. yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you all for that. I had a very uh, particular kind of experience when Deb put out her call for poems of this kind because I, I don't write poems about really, really difficult personal experiences. And it's really interesting that Kim was talking about um, feeling feelings being embodied, that, you know, you carry feelings, you know, the body keeps the score and all of that. And yet when I saw Deb's call out, um, I drafted the poem that's in the anthology in about 10 minutes, and I'd never spoken about it before to anyone. And yet, for me, there was something about wanting to break the silence. And whether or not it appeared in the anthology, I wanted Deb to be a, wit a witness to it, or at least someone to be a witness to it. So that was a real revelation for me, that um, from kind of carrying this heaviness, it was just... It was, it was good to, to let it go in this, in this kind of way. So... Um, I'm kind of quite addicted to breaking the silence now, you know. And I, I don't know if Jane, I don't know if Jane, Kim, oh, Jane, Jane Kimmane's in the audience, yes, who's a wonderful editor. And uh, we often talk about bravery. And I just feel, that's it, I'm going to be braver. Uh, you know, now that I've done it in, in that way, and I, somehow I, I feel perhaps that's the case for a lot of women. So, yes. I'm going to read it, Ross. Shall I read it now? Um, oh, well, or later? It, well, maybe later. Yeah, should yeah. we do it later? Let's do it later. It's a good sort of summary poem. Okay. Let's hear some more poems then, shall we? How about if we have one from each of you? Okay. Well, yeah. uh, I, I'll go first because the one I've chosen to read, it's not my work. It's from the beginning of the book. And the book is divided into seven sections which start with poems early on um, about an awareness of the male gaze, I suppose. And this is called Nervous by Sally Jenkinson. It's just a game that girls and boys from school play in the park. They move a hand slowly up one of your legs. You make your mind a strong, blank, calico sail. Their soft hand touches your shin, knee, thigh. You try to stare at the horizon. Your skin is mottled a bit purple by the wind. 
When you can't tolerate it any longer, you say, nervous, and they stop. The girl who tolerates it the longest is the winner. That's how you win the game. You just have to tolerate it. Thank you. Skull. I'm going to read one of my poems from the anthology. And it is in Mama Amazonica. Uh, it's not a poem that I read very often. This is just the second time. And uh, I did... I wrote it when I was writing my previous book and then I took it out of the book but now I put it in this book and uh, the only way I was able to write this was to um, use a strict form and the form is one called the golden shovel I don't know if you know it but it's a rather marvellous form because you take a, a line from a poem that you really love and you have that line um, going down the right margin of your poem so that each end word uh, makes that line. And the line that I used was Les Murray's. Uh, your family weaves you on devotion's loom, rick-racking the bed. Uh, and that's um, from his poem Cotton Flannelette. Square de la Place Duplex. Inside the sand pit, you are playing for your life. Your bucket and spade that smiled all day long like family in your satchel now work hard. Your material is sand. It weaves a universe where you are huge. The cellar behind you, eclipsed by twelve chestnut trees and their pigeon gods. On and on you burrow into your sanctuary, devotion's priest. There are rituals to do, like counting leaves on the sky's loom. Any lapse and you tumble back into the brain's forks, rick racking the minutes, for the lock that unclicks, the coffining dark, the hooded stranger with Papa's voice, the makeshift bed. Thank you. Thank you very much. Before we um, hear from Kim, um, I was just, I had your, all of your collections um, in preparation for this this event and reading the poems, reading the bloods, and something from um, the back of what the water gave me, uh, a quote, each of the, the poems is an evocation of how art works on the pain spectrum. And that really struck me as being fascinating in terms of what we do when we write about these very difficult things. Um, for example, do you as well as describing, transforming, 
transcending in some ways, is, is it also an act of hope? You know, how do you, how do you feel when you write about some of these very difficult things, Kim? Um, I think um, when I was writing the sequence in my book about domestic violence, for me it was a way of finding out um, like the shape of the experience and how big it was and whether I could, yeah, whether I could kind of carry it, I suppose. So, um, and the, the sequence isn't narrative. It doesn't say this happened and this has mm. happened. It's not like a kind of misery memoir. Um, it's more like walking around an experience and looking at it. In my head, I was walking around it and seeing what it looked like from different angles. Sometimes I was climbing on top of it and looking down or getting inside it and looking out. Um, and I think, yeah, so I think for me, when I'm writing about painful things, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find the shape of it. And I think putting a poem around something like that, it's like putting a fence around for me and um, uh, kind of cuts it off. Um, I find this much harder to talk, like talking about it. It's much yeah. harder than reading a poem yeah. that's apparently, yeah. well, it, it, yeah. it's really personal because I see the poem almost as being like a shield yeah. that I can put in front of me and yeah. the, the audience, whereas... Now I'm just talking to you, and I'm just me, and there's nothing to hide. <laughs> so I, I, I don't know if that answered the question. I yeah, the question yeah, absolutely. Talking. I really like that idea of you kind of helicoptering down on it and looking at it sideways and from underneath. And I always think of um, Elizabeth Bishop's monument poem when I'm writing a sequence, and I, I you know, I, I don't know the the kind of history or background of that poem, but I love the way she just walks round and round yeah. this monument and describes it in great detail but at the end you're not really left with a picture of the monument mm. and how does she do that in this really long poem and I suppose that's kind of what I wanted to do with the sequence as well I wanted to write about this experience but I don't didn't really want to tell the personal details because if it's, it's mm. still mm. you know it's a personal mm. private thing sure sure We've done a number of um, readings from Me Too now over, over the last few months, and, and sometimes what you, you get in audiences is almost a, a kind of cathedral-like silence mm -hmm. where people are really taking in and just being incredibly respectful. What kind of... Um, how do audiences react, just, Kim, to, to, to your sequence, for example, generally? Um. The sequence in general has been really, um, it's, I mean, when I first published the poems, I, I was really terrified of reading them out, and um, I can still remember the first reading, and I was shaking, and this woman coming up to me and saying, that's happened to me as well, and mm -hmm. I, although it, I feel mean saying, oh, I, was glad, I wasn't glad it had happened to her, but it kind of normalised it, that it happened to someone else and they were in front of me and they looked quite normal um, mm. so for me it was a it's been a really cathartic thing mm. and every reading I've done every single time without fail a woman has come up and said that's happened to me which I found really shocking um, I just didn't expect that that mm. to happen um, but then the PhD stuff the sexism things I get um, women coming up and saying oh I can tell you a story blah 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 mm. and then I get some really interesting responses from from men as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I get some really lovely men too who really get it, and then I get um, 
you know, I've, yeah, they're going to be part of my PhD anyway. Yeah. They don't know they are, right. but they are. Um, I so. hope we get a chance to just touch on your PhD before the end of the event. Um, so, Pascal, yes, yeah, so this quote was on the back of um, what the water gave me. Pain, you know, what are we doing when we write? Are we putting the pain on the page? Are we transforming it? What's, what's it like for you? Uh, for me, it's all about making art. Uh, when I was uh, a child uh, in Paris and having a pretty horrible home life, I started uh, drawing. And eventually the drawing became sculpture and also poems. And uh, I... I needed to make those things very, the art, very real, so that the world I escaped to could nurture me and could be a place where I could live. And um, I am by nature, I think, uh, an optimist and uh, hopeful and uh, a joyful person, even though I suffered from depression. So... Um, I love to make art, and, but I, I do like the art to be about really about what really, really matters to me and hopefully to other people. So, uh, so I, I go into the dark and I go into the light as well. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and I bring all the things that I love, the animals that I love, uh, into it. And and also love making it as good as possible. So that's mm. wonderful, thank you. Deb? Um, I'm going to sort of step back as a, an answer as my, with my editing head as well. Yeah. I, had, I had about, as I said, about 600 poems um, submitted just within two or three weeks, and um, lot, lots of the poems hadn't, were not finished in, in that the poet hadn't... Um, resolved what they were looking at. They felt um, that the poet, poet was still in either in the situation or hadn't quite understood it and looked around it enough, hadn't processed or resolved their problem. And I had a big responsibility with the book not to include poems that, that, that left the reader with that kind of sense of unease. Um, so... That, that, it interests me that you're talking about making art first, mm -hmm. it, that it, they need to be the, their story, but it is also important that they're finished and, and good quality work as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just um, a, a process. Did, did you feel that for some of these women, it just would have been, just apart from um, the poetry, it would have been a difficult, too difficult at that point to release the material, it would have been hard. Yeah, there was a, there was a sense of unreadiness about mm -hmm. it. There were a couple of poems that I did accept, and then when, when you do the editing thing of going, are you sure about this word or this phrase? It doesn't quite work, um, um, but, but otherwise the poem is there. And, and when they were... That some people were very found that really difficult, and I could sense that they, that they weren't ready to, to have the, mm -hmm. the work in mm -hmm. the book and in the public domain, because it is quite a, a brave thing to do. I and mean, we know poets mm. who are in here that have... Um, women that are 
telling people, their friends and family, that their child is born of rape, for example, or um, a lecturer who's telling her young students that that she had been um, a victim um, of domestic abuse for, for many years. And and she read her poem to her students in tears. Mm. I think you were there when you were centre. So, yeah, it, it, it is a brave book as, as well. So quite a responsibility mm. as an editor as well to manage all that, you know, to, to manage the work that you want in the anthology as well as the tenderness, the sensitivity around all of that, there must have been uh, perhaps something that you couldn't anticipate, that backwards and forwards, that dialogue between you and... No, no. and there were a lot of emails. um, And yes, and and of course, it wasn't like... It's hard enough as an editor to say no, but to say no to somebody who shares something difficult for the first time um, involved lots of... I'm really sorry to hear about your story emails and you know because of the constraints of the size of the book I, there isn't room but we were able to put some online um, so there are some poems that long listed poems um, are, are online great thank with you with Wild Women Press if anyone yes. wants to have a look shall we hear some more poems um, perhaps we'll we'll go down and I will read mine as well in this round so okay. uh, yeah which one have I chosen I'm going to read um, My Fault by Helen Mort. Consider my fault. It starts here on my temple, so slim it could be a strand of stray hair. Up close at kissing distance, it's bolder, a slip of charcoal eyeliner. When I find it in the mirror, it moves, the creeping leg of a spider, a crack across a plate left in the oven too long. It parts a fraction like the lips of someone sleeping, breathing in an unfamiliar bed. And when I think of that, it widens, crescent-shaped, smile of a moon above the house they'd say I shouldn't have been in, rim of the glass I shouldn't have touched. It turns into a zip, slit of a pencil skirt, and I can feel my body opening, a fault line in the ground and everything, his hands and books, the quartered bread, the wine, the room I don't remember entering, loosed and falling into me. I turn into a road that always takes me back to the same place, pit town, midnight, frost across the playing fields, as I go silent underneath the broken roundabout, zigzag below pavements, terrace, the winding wheel crossed with a thin seam of light, and no one can touch me, not for centuries. Thank you. Let's go. I'll I'll read my second poem from the anthology um, in which my mother is half a woman and half uh, a rainforest, (laughs) which I found was the only way I could love her. My mother's dressing gown. At night, she wore a rustling affair with smoky lining 
filmy tree ferns overlaid with prickly palms. It was like having a cloud forest in the room. Her face was an axed mahogany. Her hands emerged from emerald sleeves to meet on the table, talons tensed like a puma challenging a terra. Her feet, for maman, wore stilettos indoors, were the stilt roots of fin trees, and under her gown she wore a moss basque with bats clinging to her cleavage. Lianas encased her figure in the series of corsets my father bought her, and her legs were snared in mist-net stockings lit by diamonds of moonlight filtering through the sub-canopy. Her pelvis was a bank riddled with burrows that Papa dug with his nails. He loved to surprise her by inventing new raids on her nests. She was a smolder of leaves in the lee of a bushfire, flat under the steam-rolling man who owned her. From my cot, I heard cries only a cornered peccary would make. I'd wake screaming from night terrors. Then Maman would come, her robe alight. But Papa would order her back to bed. And then there'd be nothing between me and my father. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> so this this poem I um, wrote after just after Trump got <laughs> got in, and uh, I felt really depressed. Um, and I was talking to my my friend, uh, the poet Claire Shaw, about this kind of feeling of um, like despair, I suppose, if that's not too grandiose. And we decided to do something kind of positive, and we started writing poems to each other. So this is the last we had. So we had six of them published in the north and this is the last poem in that correspondence <clears throat> when I open when I open my ribs a dragon flies out and when I open my mouth a sheep trots out and when I open my eyes silverfish crawl out and make for a place that's not mine when I open my fists, two skylarks fly out, and when I open my legs, a horse gollops out, and when I open my heart, a wolf slinks out and watches from beneath the trees. When I open my arms, a hare jumps out, and when I show you my wrists, a shadow cries out, and when I fall to my knees, a tiger slips out and will not answer to me. Now that the tree that grew in my chest has pulled up its roots and left, now that I'm open and the sky has come in and left me with nothing but space, now that I'm ready to lie like a cross and wait for the ghost of him to float clear away, will my wild things come back? Will the horse of my legs and the dragon of my ribs and the gentle sheep which lived in my throat like a breath of mist and the silverfish of my eyes and the skylarks of my hands and the wolf of my heart, will they all come back and live here again? Now that he's left, now I've said the word, whisper it, rape. Now I've said the word, whisper it, shame. Will my true ones, my wild, my truth, 
Will my wild come back to me again? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, it, it seems appropriate at this point, after those powerful and dazzling poems, to say that you can buy the anthology, and it's at the back, and all proceeds will be going to Women's Aid. <clears throat> so this is the poem that I was telling you about um, earlier on, that I, a poem that I've never written the like of, but I now have the taste for. <laughs> this poem is for you. Carrying a bale of warm towels, house low-lit, quiet. A great silence recently come to my heart. A long quiet such as one might find buried in a seam of coal. I think of your darkness, far away, weightless as a crane fly. On the stairs I stop halfway and remember as every so often I must do, of being scattered in the tread of your boot, of women gathering me in boat arms, attending there, as one dawn gave way to another, until I was strong. I remember, and though my front is soft as lawn, as milk, a buried lesson is diamond in my bones and seems to shine. And I think um, this is a, a, an appropriate time for, for you to, um, to talk to us. You know, your reactions perhaps to what you've heard, your responses your questions, if you have any. I've got loads of other questions, but I, I do want to open this. And Jill is here ready to relay the questions up here because we, we don't have a roving mic. So has anyone um, got something to, to kick us off? There's no such thing as the Ledbury Reserve. <laughs> Adam. Um, so Adam was very touched and moved and um, gives profound thanks to you for, for reading. And uh, he thinks men have got a way to go, but they're open for, uh, for learning. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have a question or a comment, Dom? So, what was the last bit? To resolve and to actually try to, 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 to,
So Don was saying that, um, you know, with all these revelations, there was a lot of silence from men afterwards, um, and a lot of men perhaps felt complicit. Um, so once a man becomes aware of this situation, what can he do to help other men move forward uh, to resolve issues and perhaps prevent such behaviour in the future? Uh, um it's, it's a great question. I, I, there is one whole section of the book um, which is women who, who, who feel guilty for not having stepped forward or said anything. There is some, um, there's a rape by a woman of another woman and I would say that, um, that we're all complicit, men and women, um, and, um, you know, there, there is no answer to that. I, I mean, the, the answer... Is big and it's about how we bring up boys. In my opinion, I think I think it starts very young. That that um, when a, one boy hits an anybody or uses aggression, that they are not allowed to do it. That's my opinion. And there seems to be a societal com, 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 what's complicity is that the right word um, that we allow that to happen. And I think that has to change. I think um, some kind of practical. Things that I think, I mean, the fact that men have come to this event and are listening is a really positive thing, along with women, that you've not kind of run out of the room terrified. Um, I think helpful responses are what you've just done, um, being open to listening. Um, and I think on a practical level, I would love it if men actually stood up more and spoke out when they see something happening, even online. Um, I've noticed. Um, if a man speaks up and says, hold on, that's not right, they get listened to more than if a woman does it. Um, so I would like more allies and men to kind of stand up alongside women and say, we get it. And um, yeah, and even down to like, you know, I think what you, you're right about what you said about we're all kind of complicit and that's what I'm interested in as well is um, how I, I'm complicit in sexism as well because we all we all kind of we all kind of perform and enact it and we all have to get through life as well like if you fought every single instance of sexism homophobia racism everything else you'd just be fighting all the time and you have to pick your battles otherwise you end up exhausted and no good to anybody but um yeah i would like to like men to kind of obviously not standing up and getting beaten up for it. Um, mm. If it's safe to do so, then I would like more men to speak mm. up. And I, sorry, I, I was just going to say that, that often the arena for that is social media. And the, the fantastic thing, I think, about uh, fourth wave feminism is that it is playing out on social media. And women are not um, just responding and reacting to what their experience has been, but are much more powerfully putting themselves forward and being honest about a whole range of things. And I think that's, that's certainly where men can contribute, as, as Kim was saying, to the debate, um, you know, in a civilised way. Yeah, I was just going to add really to what um, Deb said about the upbringing of uh, boys. But also it's the upbringing of girls, um, because what I experienced um, in the West of um, you know the boy being favoured and the boy being more important, 
uh, is magnified in some countries. And so there is this, I, I think, the, the whole feeling that an awful lot of women have that they're just, they don't have as much value as men, as boys. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a very deep-seated thing, and so I think it, it would start in the home. Mm -hmm. I think you see that come out um, when you're running poetry workshops, actually. Like, I don't think I've ever run a workshop where... I don't want to put a few put in, come into my workshop tomorrow, please do speak up. But often when I say, would anyone like to share a poem, the men always yeah. go first, and there's yeah. nothing wrong with yeah. that. And often the men, I think the men are trying to rescue the tutor sometimes, because yeah. they feel yeah. like there's a gap and I've got to fill yeah. it because the tutor might think I'm, you know, people don't like, you know, I get that sense of yeah. they're trying to rescue you. But um, yeah, I have noticed that every single workshop, the men kind of, they've got the confidence to come forward. And I think that again, that's the thing that, you know, women could maybe take more responsibility and come forward and men could maybe step back just a little bit just yeah. to give them a bit more room. It's not that I'd want men to be silent in workshops. I honestly don't. <laughs> Please don't be silent tomorrow. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just something I've yeah. noticed. I don't know if anyone else, but... Um, you see, I'm, I'm interested in the kind of when it comes to on the micro level yeah. and then yeah. how it gets bigger. It's funny, actually, because half of my... I'm, I'm mixed race, although I don't look like it, and half of my family are Muslim... Uh, Muslim... Uh, family in uh, India and Pakistan and you know it's off the scale the <laughs> sexism there you know so this kind of you know, that's awful so these micro things here in this culture that's what I great, yeah, yeah. The, the battle and in is, China yeah and it's just yeah. It's absurd my uh, brother was much more important than I was yeah. <laughs> he still is isn't he? and I think also the way that fathers behave in the home to their daughters and to their sons you know, I, I, my father was, uh, who, who I actually, you know, I adored, but he was this kind of titan alpha male figure who I was just kind of in awe of. And that conditioning has been with me for my whole life, you know. And so um, I just, and having an awareness of that, I think, is also really important. But, but I think men also need to know... Um, and think about um, their relationship with, with their daughters as they're growing up. I think that that thing of men, um, of fathers, my dad was definitely like this, of um, uh, basically the, the jokes around, oh, they'll beat your boyfriend up if they touch mm. you sort of thing. I don't know, maybe it's just my family. <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite <laughs> um, but I have heard other, other guys do that, of being this protective thing of their daughters' bodies. And I think I can see it comes from a place of love, definitely, but I think it's basically teaching young women that your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your father. Mm. So when you become an adult, to then, to then be able to say, no, this is my body and I'm in charge of it, it's a really... I'm talking on an unconscious level, because obviously consciously we, mm. we know that, but I think unconsciously you're taught from a very young age that your body isn't yours because you have to have a man to protect it. And I think it'd be much healthier if men taught their daughters... You know, to, to protect their own. Yeah, <laughs> sounds <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Uh, we, we shouldn't also forget. I'm sure we don't, but but that um, you know, men get raped and abused as well. So there's the, mm -hmm. the Me Too mm. uh, does include them too. Mm. Anja, um, go back to the interesting men workshops and 
when women are silenced. There's been some research that shows that if men and women in a meeting, in a business meeting, talk mm-hmm. and the equivalent amount of time the women are seen as talking too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we get angry, if we are shrill and mm-hmm. hysterical, if you are assertive, then you're a, a dragon or a bullbuster or whatever. So, you know, we are, and we are all complicit because women will criticise you for the same things as well. That, you know, and the other thing about being silent, I, I did some personal safety training because some of you know I've worked in some very dodgy situations. Um, and when women are learning to defend themselves, the first thing they do is smile. So, you know, they're facing a, a pretend aggressor and they smile at them because that's what we're conditioned to do. So we're conditioned all the time to be quiet and to smile and to be nice and not be angry. Does anybody need me to repeat what Angela said or did you hear her? Okay, great. Katerine. Um, this is going into a completely different direction, but um, in terms of your writing, how important was it to read literature or poetry that already kind of touched upon or actually like, yeah, was about these subjects for you to find imagery, language, a voice to, to write what you were writing? So was it important for you to read other works and similar subjects in order to find your own way into your own writing, have I conveyed that correctly? The subject matter particularly. Um, I I think with my sequence, definitely two of my kind of poetry heroes are here now. Um, Pascal, the way she writes about violence and trauma, and um, yeah, I read everything, because I couldn't write about it, I felt completely blocked and I didn't know how to go about it, so I read everything Pascal um, had written, and then I looked at, um, I read Helen Ivory's Waiting for Bluebeard, which is a fantastic book, and kind of completely different, opposite approach almost, isn't it? But um, And I've also read Manny's Alvey's Europa, which is a fantastic book about um, post-traumatic stress um, disorder. Yeah. So, yeah, for me it was, and then, and then after that I went and read Ovid's Metamorphosis, <laughs> um, because, and so that's how I approached, approached it, looking at these different writers and how um, transformation, I think, being transformed by another person, which is what happens when you're in a violent relationship, is the most violent thing that can happen to you, not being hit or emotionally abused. It's the transformation of the self, and then how do you get that back? So now I've freaked Pascal and <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Um, for me, it was different because... Uh, I started writing one when I was a child, but um, I didn't publish my first book until, I'm very bad with dates, but I think I was 44, so uh, there were actually very few women writing, uh, published, I should say, published then, and uh, so very few um, models to to, um, encourage one. And uh, so I think it took me a very long time to develop as a poet and develop my voice, as it were. I I do remember, though, reading Sharon Olds' The Father Mm. and thinking, oh, it's possible to (laughs) be that direct. And I had already produced one book, um, Heart of a Deer, which had lots of foliage. Mm-hmm. camouflage and foliage <laughs> and in the zoo father was much more direct mm-hmm. so it, so that was a help uh, silver plath was there but then that's um, 
you know, that, that's kind of a tricky model, really. So, yeah, very, very little. Oh, uh, yeah, for, for me, um, actually, in a way, I, I was in, in, a, in an abusive relationship for about four years, and the, the rest of my life was all innocent and lovely, and it's been, and it was, it was a transformation, but I was, I was writing poetry before that but it was really helpful for me to to write about it um and uh, it was a kind of I, I wanted to turn that horrible painful thing into something creative I wanted to make something I, I bought the ambulance and did emergency poet at the same time and it was a you know I'm going to make good out of this bad but I don't I didn't I didn't I wasn't oddly consciously writing to, to be published or thinking of myself, but it was, it was a, a kind of cathartic thing for me, although I never really approved of doing that before, but I needed to, so they felt necessary. Um, but I've done... I mean, I think both Helen and Pascal, you, you, you write about pain in strange ways, mm -hmm. in a, through a sort of strange lens, and I found myself writing about the most difficult things that had happened to me without having read your work at the time I think and um, in in metaphor in order because it was too horrible otherwise you know and I th this book has helped me write about it more directly actually without that filter um, but harder though somehow uh, well I think that's yeah. All the questions we have time for. I noticed that the men went first, but we had equal yes, numbers of colleagues for men and women. So I'm just going to hand back to Ros now. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jill. And what we're just going to do is to um, finish uh, in unison with the last poem in the anthology. Over to Deb. Um, this poem is called Spartaca by Pippa Little. Spartacus was a rebel slave hunted down by the Romans to be crucified. Asked to identify himself by soldiers, everyone in the crowd around him stepped forward and said, I am Spartacus. In the room, in the street, on the stair, where some men make free in plain sight, or in secret, as if we were sweetmeat to dip fingers in and then forget. It is the being alone afterwards that numbs and maims. Utterly alone. In the silence of it. Where shame creeps in. Stuns dead. But now we rise. All women. Fondled and hurt and licked in acid jokery and in hate. Pets. Sweethearts. Loves. Darlings. Humorless bitches. We stand together, each one a Spartaca. No longer silent or alone. Each voice stronger. Massing, alive, a wild murmuration of me too. Me, me too. too. Me, me too. too. Thank you. Thank you.